What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right, what's up? And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today, I am joined by Andy Panko. He is the owner and lead financial planner at Tenon Financial LLC. Um, and honestly, if you follow him on LinkedIn, he's just kind of a wealth of knowledge, sharing everything from great financial planning moves to education to talking about fees, and I'd say everything in between. So, Andy, thanks for joining me today, man. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Anything else you want to add as part of your intro that maybe I didn't miss on? I know you have a great Facebook community too, right? Uh, yeah, it's now called Retirement Planning Education. Used to be called Taxes and Retirement. Um, it was focused initially on just like the tax angle of retirement planning. I've since kind of broadened it out to more general retirement planning stuff, but that, that's that's large and getting larger. It's almost concerning how fast that thing continues to grow, but that's probably my my biggest sort of social outlet, if you will. How many follow or how many people are in that one? Like forty thousand or something? Uh, yeah, it's like forty three, maybe. Last I checked, yeah. and that's and incredible. Going, it's like two fifty, three hundred new people a week consistently at this point. So it's like this animal that keeps feeding itself and just just growing. Yeah, that's incredible. I don't use Facebook because of the audience I work with. But last week we had Brandon Hall on, who I don't know if you know him. He's like the real estate CPA, but mm. they have a community on Facebook too of pretty close to that amount. And they fill their entire tax and tax planning business all straight out of that Facebook group. Yeah, that that was and still is probably the core of my exposure in, in business development, for lack of a better word. I stopped taking new clients uh, last year, recently hired and started up again. But um, that, that, that has been phenomenal exposure, partly because it's various sort of touch points. You can type a question, you know, Andy responds or Andy used to, now he doesn't, he's not as active anymore. I also did live videos every week where that, that element of video where someone can see you and how you act and, and even ask questions live when I would do the videos, that was huge, you know, engagement and, and to get people to sort of feel comfortable with feeling like they know me and how I think and stuff. So if used properly, Facebook and any social media outlet for that matter is, is tremendously or can be tremendously successful in, in you know, building yourself, yeah. your exposure, your, your uh, client base. Yeah, I think we're both a testament to that. And I think, honestly, Facebook can work. I, all these advisors ask me like, hey, how? what would you do? And I'm like, here's what I did for who I work with. But I believe mastering any one single social media, you can grow an incredible advisory business because there's different people on every single one using it to learn in, in different ways. Exactly. Yep. Do you do you use it still somewhat active? Are you still posting videos and whatnot? I'm not active. No, I stopped doing the live videos early 2022. Oh, they were live. So you wouldn't like post a video in there of like a topic. It would no, be they, they were live every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern. I was, you know, in front of my computer live doing those things. That that got to be a grind because it was live. Yeah. Um when I hit client capacity and, you know, pandemic was over and there was more ability to get out and do stuff and meet with real people. You know, we weren't just shackled at home anymore. The, the grind of doing the weekly live videos started to feel like, you know, what, what am I still doing this for? So, so I stopped, um, haven't gone back. I think I did one or two kind of ad hoc videos, but otherwise no. So I'm not that involved in the group. I mean, my picture's still up there. It still says, you know, planning, retirement planning education by Andy Panko. And I do still comment and answer questions, but at this point, it's really the, the group and the members kind of feed itself. There's myself and a couple other admins that do the approving of new members that do the moderation of deleting out the spammers and, you know, crypto trading comments and stuff like that. But it's really member engagement and members answering members questions that that really makes yeah. tick at this point. 
That's super cool. You should, you should go back and grab all those old classes you did and put them into a little course that you just drop it and people can go in and follow it. And you know what I mean? The live work. Cause the live work is a lot like podcast is a lot. And I've always thought about pulling the lever of live ones, but I'm like, you know, it has to be at a weeknight, right? Like it has yep. to be after West coast is done. So the eight o'clock time makes a lot of sense. And it's like, man, you have a long day of meetings, you had work and just thinking about the fact that you have to like bring all of that energy Wednesday night to deliver a great presentation would be super hard. Yeah. Live is great. I think live is more effective than on demand, Definitely. but live, live is hard and it's hard to do consistently and continually. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, super cool, man. Um, let's hop into the topic today. So we're basically going to go through some of like the most debated personal finance takes. So this is, I think we'll maybe look at it more from like kind of what advisors are arguing about, because mm -hmm. I think these same things that we argue about, then clients come in or prospects come in and be like, Oh, I'm thinking about this. Um, so I think maybe one of the best ones to start with, especially because of things that you've been talking about on LinkedIn and you went and bought your own is permanent life insurance. So I think, is this something that is all good? Is it all bad? Is it in the middle and why? Like everything in this industry, the answer is, unfortunately, it depends. What I think, well, what, what I know, I'm confident in saying I know is permanent life insurance isn't inherently bad. No product. There's not many products out there, whether it's insurance or investments, that are innately bad on their own. It's how they're sold, how they're used or misused, how they're misrepresented that, that gives them a bad name. And especially where I focus in the traditional retirement planning space, I come across a lot of folks pitching various forms of, of cash value permanent life insurance as a retirement cash flow tool or tax-free income for life tool or investment alternative tool for retirees. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm around it a lot. I've seen a lot of pitches and heard a lot of ridiculous comments. And I feel the need to say that that's not right, or at best, that's a half truth or misleading. And I, I've just sort of landed in the role of coming across a lot of these really bad pitches and disingenuous pitches and feeling the need to have to say, no, that's not right and checking them on it. So I, I've never, I don't believe I've ever said the product itself is bad again, which is what a lot of insurance salespeople try to knock me for. It's like, no, it's not. It's how you're misrepresenting it, making bunk comments or outright false comments. That's what's bad about it. And that's what I've sort of taken a quest to try to uh, address or at least bring attention to, to, to get that reined in as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, you, I see them a lot you definitely probably see them a lot of, Hey, you're about to retire. Let, let's roll this 401k into this permanent life insurance policy. It's going to be really great. You know, but I mean, I also see it too, with a lot of these accumulators or, you know, some of my clients that are doctors coming out or they're pharmacists or even some of the business owners. I mean, the, the problem definitely is not the product. The problem is when it's sold, how it's sold and what they're told to get them to buy it, right? Like I, they they yeah. have all of that great sales language. Don't you want an asset that is uncorrelated to the market? And, you know, I started out at a company that they did sell permanent life insurance and I was taught all of the language around it. It was actually all I was really taught was how to sell permanent life insurance. And they're like, hey, did, did the client say they wanted something uncorrelated to the market? You're like, because you said, do you want something with great returns that doesn't have correlation to the market and any risk? It's like, who wouldn't say yes to that? Like you're fishing right. for them to just say yes to the question that you have. And I think the problem really is exactly what you said. Th these young people for me, they come on, they hear it's going to be great. Oh, you can borrow against it. It's going to grow really fast. Um, it's uncorrelated to the market. There's really no fees. Like the, those are the things that get told. And then people are just like, oh, well, I don't really know anything about money. I guess if that's the right thing and all the other high income earners that I know are apparently yep. doing it, then I have to buy it. The rich do it. It's how they get rich. It's the uh, rich person's Roth. It's a Roth on steroids, all these comments. And, and the people who sell it, they get a lot of the same training in, in sales sound bites. I can tell because I've, I've seen and heard the same stuff regurgitated multiple times over. Tax-free, divorce Uncle Sam, um, uncorrelated, like you said. Zero downside in the case of index products. You know that, that zero downside, no risk of loss thing gets so misused and misabused or abused by people who sell it. And they hit on all these points. Like, why wouldn't you say yes to all these points? Sounds amazing. Sign me up. So the sales process really is or can be that easy if you know what to say and who to say it to. Yeah. The hard part, um, 
is obviously that the commission on these are really high. I mean, you got 30 to 60 or 70% on that first year premium. So obviously that pushes people to sell it. Um, but I kind of want to hit on that one point you said. I, one thing I have people come in is some people ask about MPI, right? And we're like, okay, like, obviously this is a huge leverage product that is not going to work out the way it is, you know, send them the honest math scenario. But you talked about a point that I hear people say is like, what about this that like, I apparently I can't ever lose money, right? Like, why is that point a little misleading? So with that, I'm referring to indexed universal life insurance yep. in particular. So cash value life insurance, where the interest that you can get credited and the cash value portion of it is based on indexing. And indexing simply means the interest you get can never be less than zero. It'll only be between zero and something positive. The specific amount you get each year, each two years, each whatever your interest crediting period is, is based on some formula where the interest references the return of some underlying index. Commonly, the S&P 500, you know, the, the largest uh, um, 500 companies that, that trade in the U.S. Or there's other ones, or there's these newfangled custom volatility target or volatility controlled indices that are... Um, I don't know how, how much of a rabbit hole you want to get in on that. But so it's true that the interest you get credited on your cash value can never be negative, never be less than zero, 100% accurate. Where it's not true, and this is where people who sell it sort of gloss over the fact that you can't buy just this index cash value account. The product you're buying is first and foremost life insurance. And rightfully so, there's fees and costs associated with buying life insurance on yourself. The cash value component is just this ancillary feature kind of bolted onto the life insurance. So you as the policy holder, you don't own just the cash value account that can never get less than zero interest. You own this life insurance product. And every year, every whatever period, there's going to be fees that come out, if nothing else, the cost of the insurance itself. And it goes so up. It goes up. Well, um, this is another uh, manipulated soundbite. The cost per unit of insurance goes up as you age. So, yep. you know, only goes up, not down. But the total dollar amount of, of insurance charges you pay is based on something called net amount at risk, which not to get too technical, but it's simply the sort of face value of the policy, the death benefit, minus whatever the cash value is. And the way these illustrations are, are manufactured and the way they're, they're sold is that your cash value is going to keep going up, 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 up over time, such that the net amount at risk is going to go down, 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 down. So even though the cost per unit of insurance gets more expensive as you age, you're applying that on a smaller amount of net amount at risk, which is the amount you actually pay the cost of insurance on. So the dollar amount of cost of insurance goes down in most of these projections, not goes up. But it's still there. It's still non-zero nonetheless. So bringing it back to why is it disingenuous or flat out lie, like I've one guy who sells IULs calls them a can't lose money asset. He's referring to just the interest crediting on the cash value. It's true, that cannot go down. But you don't own just that, you own the whole product. There will be fees that come out. If nothing else, you have a year of zero interest because the markets were bad. Yes, you didn't lose money there, but you still have to pay the cost of insurance and other policy fees. So you can and will lose value in this product in those scenarios where it's even worse. And this is where folks like Curtis Ray make me cringe. Those that advocate levering up your policy, meaning borrow money out of it and keep borrowing money over time, especially when you the recommendation is to borrow money, to put money back into your policy, to buy more of it, you're, you're taking on so much levered risk that if and when something does go awry, such as zero interest crediting years because markets are down, and your policy fees still need to get paid, leverage exacerbates, and, and, and by definition, levers the, the upside and downside of how this thing can work. So for folks like Curtis Ray that are saying, no, just keep borrowing, keep putting it back in, you're always going to earn more interest than what you have to pay on the loan. If that works out, great. The product will do smashingly well like his illustrations show. If and when it doesn't, that's when these things can go bad fairly quickly and, and they can snowball and escalate, especially with a few bad years in the markets. I was saying, imagine if it's early on in the policy too, before anything has grown. I mean, that yes. could be 
that could kill you. The other part here too, is that sometimes people understand you, you brought up the, the insurance side and then the side that's the cash value side, right? Like to be able to put in a lot of cash value, you end up needing a lot of insurance. Otherwise it ends up being, Hey, your the policy becomes a mech, which means it starts to become taxable and all these other issues exist. You can't just get like a $10,000 death benefit and then stuff millions of dollars of cash value away. Otherwise it becomes taxable. Correct. And that's another misleading soundbite where a common IUL sales pitch is no contribution limits. And, and they'll, they'll, they'll you know, compare this to 401ks, IRAs, whatever. You can only contribute 7,000 bucks per year in your, or whatever it is now, 6,500 a year in yeah. your IRA. Um, no contribution limits to this IUL. And accurate to some extent, but like you said, it's first and foremost life insurance. You can only a, you got to buy life insurance, which means you have to be able to get approved for life insurance. Some people can't. But let's a lot of people can. can't actually. I think I think that's one thing that's overestimated too. I've had plenty of clients who have been denied for life insurance based on things that you wouldn't expect would make you uninsurable. Okay. So that at one extreme, you may not be eligible at all to, to put money into this magical IUL. Or if you can, maybe your health or family history is such that you're not going to get the, uh, the, the top tier premium rates. So this, this is going to be potentially prohibitively expensive for you because of your insurability. Um, so, so yes, there's not contribution limits, but you may not be able to get it. Or if you can, it could be expensive based on your history, medical history. Um, and it is life insurance. So the more you put in, like you said, the more insurance you have to buy because there is IRS limits on how much cash value or how much extra cash you can pump into it for a given level of death benefit. You can't just put infinite amounts of money into it without necessarily buying more life insurance. Yeah. You actually need that much life insurance. I think that's the question people don't know to stop to ask themselves. They just view this as an investment because it's often how it's pitched, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Good points. I think we had a good amount on the bad. Let's just then at least wrap this up to be like, we're not anti this. What are a few good use cases that we see um, for permanent life insurance? Sure. There's definitely good use cases. One is special needs planning. If you have a special needs child where he or she is going to always need some sort of financial support, uh, even when you're gone, permanent life insurance is a good way to ensure there's something there for your child when you're gone. Now, separately, that should usually be structured, be put into a special needs trust, depending on your kid's needs and how you know government uh, assistance is involved. But that's one, special needs planning. Um, business planning. If you, if you own a business and when you die, part of the plan is someone else is going to buy it out from you or from your, you know, from your spouse or heirs, a life insurance policy is often a way to do that. So me, the business owner dies, the person who agreed to buy my business may not have a few million bucks, whatever the business is worth. So Pay insurance could come into play. Yeah. To, to buy it out. Um, or if you just want to ensure there's a legacy, you know, you have a couple million dollars, let's say of assets, you're retired, but you want to ensure you leave at least a million for your kids. You can buy a permanent life insurance policy of a million dollars or, you know, whatever the number is. So those are the common use cases where it definitely makes sense to consider. For everyone else, not to say it's not worth it or that these uh, investment twisted or focused IULs, for example, uh, can't end up working out well, but it's do you really need it? Will they work out as planned? We don't know. So that's where it gets questionable of do you need this product, this life insurance to, to do whatever it is you think it's going to do? Yeah. The last two I can think of are... Um... If there's like, hey, I'm going to pass away, we're going to have like no liquidity, this can be a way to have liquidity and maybe even pay estate taxes if we're ultra wealthy, or then, and maybe this combination is islets of, hey, this allows us to then pay this out tax-free upon our death. Those are like the other use cases, I would say, but I think we hit that really well. You did a great job explaining it. Let's go to another topic. Let's go active versus passive investing. I think everybody debates this. I think you look at the firms that kind of their, their hedge is on investing, they're going to take a more active approach. And then yeah. you have a lot of the smaller RIAs, especially, or even other ones where very passive, low cost investing. What's your viewpoint here? Oh man, how much time you got? So five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, prior to starting my firm in 2019, I spent 19 years in institutional investments and risk management, mostly doing due diligence and analysis of investment managers, namely uh, hedge funds and private equity funds. So I'm very familiar with active strategies of all sorts, not just stocks. And my general view is the more liquid, the more trafficked, the more traded and, and covered by analysts, a, a certain security investment type, the more 
passive makes sense because there's so many people, so many eyeballs, so many quants and CFAs out there all trying to find the secret sauce or the arbitrage opportunity that they arbitrage away all that edge such that active, generally speaking, uh, won't, at least not consistently, outperform just passive. So for large liquid you know, US stocks, not micro cap, not penny stocks, but stuff that actively trades, um, passive almost certainly will do better than active, especially considering the lower fees involved. When you add a 1% fee drag or whatever in active, that really gonna hamper it. Go down the spectrum to stuff that's less uh, research, traded, et cetera. That's where active starts to matter. So extreme example, a lot of the hedge funds I dealt with would deal in really illiquid stuff like distressed credits or buying and leasing airline engines, for example. You can't do that in a passive in a passive format. You need someone who has the experience, who does the hands-on work to go out and find these bespoke off the beaten path assets and can really understand them. Uh, another one is like bankruptcy claims. There's people who make a business out of companies go bankrupt, like Lehman Brothers, for example. All of its creditors can sit and drag themselves through years of, of court process to hope to get pennies on the dollar, or they can sell their claims, their rights to whatever's left to someone else like a hedge fund who buys them out. The hedge fund then spends the years fighting through the court system and the, the litigation process, whatever. That's a very active strategy that can be lucrative where you can't do that in a passive environment. Yeah. The vast majority of people listening and, and consumers out there, they're never going to have involvement in buying aircraft engines or you know Lehman Brothers bankruptcy claims. They're buying stocks and bonds. For those, especially stocks, uh, it, it's hard to make an argument where active is going to be better. For bonds and fixed income, there starts to be more of an argument where, where active could add more value. But for the vast majority of people and types of things they invest in, passive still likely going to do better. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I think sometimes people mix up like, passive and active here to be like, passive just means I own like, you know, total stock market fund, right? And active means I'm day trading. And I think there's like a whole spot in the middle here where I think most of us have this viewpoint where we want mostly passive and passive doesn't mean total stock market index. It might mean that we still have beliefs around um, like value and momentum. We still want tilts a little bit to emerging markets and small cap. Like we still want a global asset allocation the way we want. And, you know, I personally am not like changing those percentages very often of what I do. I'm yeah. not like, hey, you know, US large cap is now way overvalued relative to international. I'm going to go there. I kind of keep those percentages, but I, I think the one part that I don't know the argument here is I use DFA funds, right? And so DFA mm. is more active than the, you know, indexes it tracks, but it's still different than a fully active fund. It's kind of that middle ground. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'm I'm more passive than DFA is. I don't personally subscribe. I understand the research and the history behind DFA, but I I don't uh, use that approach. I, I I'm still active to some extent in that, like like you mentioned, total stock fund. At one extreme, you want to be I don't want to say lazy, but you can use like the Vanguard total stock fund, which is global, you know, yep. U.S. and international, and call it done. I don't do that. I, I I slice and dice a little bit more within the U.S. I typically split it two ways, S&P 500 than extended markets. Because even if you use just a U.S. total market, vast majority is still S&P. I think only like 20%, for example, a small and mid cap. I like to have those a little more evenly mixed. An international, same thing on a total uh, global basis. I like to have slightly different proportion. But I'm still using you know total international fund S&P 500 fund, extended markets fund, just in different combination or different percentages than what the total global stock fund is. Yeah. So everyone's still somewhat active in that regard, and I'm no different. To me, active versus passive is I don't try to do, I think small cap's going to outperform large cap going forward, or value versus growth, the US versus international. I definitely don't do specific stock selection where I think these five stocks are going to outperform the broader market. That's clearly active, and that's you know what I don't subscribe to. Yeah, I'm the same way. I still have S&P 500 as the core and then I use some of the DFA funds, but for me what was helpful is now they launch ETFs and yeah. now their fees are a lot lower, so my total portfolio cost is still well under 0.2, like maybe even 0.15. So it's not a high cost portfolio, but I also think sometimes it's easier to explain to clients, show this research, show why we believe in small cap value 
why we believe in the value tilt, why we believe in international, why we believe in emerging yeah. markets. I think sometimes half the battle is getting people on the same page, understand why this is our investment philosophy that we're going to stick with with a long period of time, actively rebalance. And I, it's also why I don't use all DFA funds, but I use the core as the S&P 500s. People understand it and think about it and get it. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have, and a lot of people do, a very defensible, well-thought-out approach. And I, I can't say my approach is going to end up being better or worse than yours or vice versa. Um, only time will tell. Yeah, I think clearly there's some where it can be dicey if you're investing in only three stocks, for example. That's like, oh, man, right? Like, yes, maybe that'll completely crush the, the passive-based portfolio I use. Maybe it won't, right? Maybe one of those three stocks will go bankrupt, and, and there goes your whole 10-year track record. Um, there's, there's multiple ways to slice and dice a passive or passive-like portfolio, none of which are necessarily right or wrong. The, the key, I think, is focus on what you can control as opposed to what you can't. And generally, that's allocations, that's fees, that's to some extent taxability, and that's overall diversification. If you do that well, there's lots of ways you can come up with a, a good or a right portfolio for someone. Yeah. Okay. So anything else to add on this topic? Active versus passive? I, I don't think so. Um, what, well, maybe, maybe one thing more recent with the passive, like on the fixed income side, I think there's much more case to be made where buying individual bonds like treasury bills, where you can get over 5% currently. Um, I started doing that. Now, I don't know if you would call that active. Uh, I mean, it is single security buying and selling, but that's where it gets a little gray. It's not just like the Vanguard total bond market fund. It's, it's using yeah. individual bonds. So. Yeah. And a lot of people too, like a lot of my high income clients are buying munis too, because it's like, okay, right. well, why, you know, if we're going to hold on to a bunch of cash, we're in the, you know, we're in a 37% tax bracket and live in California after tax rate of return on munis. I mean, you're going to want to go find probably individual ones, or I guess you could still do a muni fund, but a lot of times with bonds, the individual ones can be better. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Um, okay. Cool. So maybe another one we go into is because some of you talk about fees and talking about, you know, the fee debate here. I think, I, I don't know your viewpoint. My viewpoint is I'm fine with tons of different fee models. I think consumers just need to be conscious. They need to understand what their total fee is. They need to understand how they're paying their advisor. And it's okay if some people, you know, there, there are, there is a world where products and only selling products is the best, right? You have people who are yeah. just out of college. If you're a good advisor that's selling them term and DI, and, and maybe they're starting up a Roth and you're helping them, that might be the only way that they can pay. Then there's other people who, you know, maybe retirees, right? A subscription fee could be out of out of cash flow, could feel way harder to do than, you know, a flat fee coming out of assets. And then there's ultra high net worth people who maybe they need like tons and tons of planning and time and teams around them where an asset under management fee works. So the goal here isn't necessarily to be like any of these is wrong, but I still think it is good to talk about this because we've never really talked about this fee debate on here. Yeah, you said it right. At a minimum, consumers, clients need to know how much they're paying and how they're paying it. That should never be hidden or murky to them. Um, and I think in many cases, advisors are good at making that, that clear. I, I worked, as I mentioned, prior to 2019 in and around institutional investment management. So fully aware of the percent of assets under management structure as that was what, what was employed by most of the um, companies I dealt with and, and funds I monitored and whatever. And as a consumer of financial advice, I never thought percent of AUM fee structure made sense as a consumer. Maybe a few decades ago when all advisors were really doing was truly managing investments, there's more of a case to be made even then. Uh, you know, I, I'll still debate that with anyone who wants to talk about it. But especially now, last 10 years or whatever, where probably everyone listening to this, a lot of what they do, if not most of what they do, is, is planning, other general planning. It's not just security selection and rebalancing. So now the case is even weaker for why setting the dollar amount of fee charged to someone is based on something as arbitrary as quarterly account balances. And, and that never sat well with me, even before I, I wanted to be an advisor. So when I did 
in 2016 say, okay, I, I want to change paths and become my own advisor, that's when I really started thinking critically about what are the most logical ways to try to charge someone for the services that, that I want to offer. And percent of assets under management was, was really low down on that list. And a lot of other advisors doing what I do, which is typical retiree, pre-retiree, mass affluent um, investment management and, and financial planning, uh, they're in the same boat as me, where percent of assets under management isn't the most logical or most uh, mutually fair way to charge. So um, I set out to do a flat fee, which makes sense for me and the clients I work with. Like you said, no fee is going to be the right or the best fee for everyone. Um, for what it's worth, I, I think pure hourly makes the most sense on the surface for a professional service like what we all provide. Hourly makes the most sense. But practically speaking, it's not going to work for ongoing relationships where it does require dialogue and communication between consumer and advisor or client and advisor. They'll be hesitant to reach out to their advisor for fear of running the clock. Uh, they got a question that they may hold off asking that question and it'll blow up into something big that's going to involve much more time to fix because they were hesitant to you know, get charged another 350 bucks for that hour of time. So hourly, I think, will can't really work well for consistent ongoing relationships. Next logical would be complexity-based. And by complexity-based, I don't just mean percent of assets with like a small little bolted-on tweak. I mean like truly complexity-based. Like you and your business, you deal with some incredibly complex clients Massive amounts of net worth, business interest, uh, estate issues, whatever. Investable asset size is such a poor gauge of what goes into what you do and or the value of what you do. And I don't mean you in particular, but like well, clients like that in general, right? Um, come up with some complexity-based model. But, but even that's hard. Yeah. Like how do you gauge a complexity and put a number on it, right? Like yeah. uh, you probably have thoughts about that, right? No, me too. I mean, that's something that we've been struggling on too is evaluating fees because we were like, do we go a net worth model? And based on your net worth, you fit in this tier. But then there's some people higher net worth that are lower complexity than yeah. people who have lower net worth. Or um, the AUM one is tough too, because again, we have some people who are like multiple million revenue businesses that all they've done is build this business forever. So if we manage yeah. their backdoor Roth we're doing, they'd pay us 65 bucks a year. And right. In reality, we're spending 40 hours of time between our firm. And I think sometimes the hard part too around this, and actually I'll hit on hourly before I go into that. Hourly in my mind too does sound best in theory. The problem is, is that everybody comes in, has a different idea of what it'll take. So I had somebody who requested hourly for me and they were like, multiple million net worth. They made a million in income. They had a bunch of equity comp. And he's like, I just want help on my ISOs. And you're like, it doesn't work like that. Like right. I can't just look at your ISOs and tell you what to do. It's going to require all the planning. I need to know what your goals are. We need to know all of your income. We need to know what the AMT yeah. liability is going to be. We need to know how we're going to pay. It. And they're like, I think it'd only take about three hours. And you're just like, there's just no way, right? Like this would take, you know, 10 to 15 hours at a minimum, probably even more if you want full planning. I don't know how you just plan ISOs instead of all right. the rest of your planning. And so they're like, well, hey, I don't really think it makes sense to be pay for a full financial plan because I just need help here. Or your example was great of like, I didn't think the other side for me is, do I do this extra work? That's nice to have. Do I do this extra analysis to solidify things that I would do for every other client or do you not? And then you're like, hey, do you want me to do this? No, of course, we want to save on the fee that I think it becomes this whole hard conversation that like for us, we do just a financial plan, but we know how long it's probably going to take. The other lens that we're not viewing from is value. So there's the time and the cost, and then there's the value, right? I could work on one client and save them millions and millions of dollars on taxes even it's the same amount of time as somebody else who you're just helping them hold them accountable and set up the foundational stuff. The, the value piece, I think somewhat has to be included here. If you're saving somebody millions of dollars on taxes by what you know really well, any employee by knowing something really well and helping a business would get compensated more, even if they're spending the same amount of time as somebody else. And I think that's a hard part to iron out on advisor fees. It is. Um, I have mixed feelings about that. I wrote a few articles, which I'd, I'd be happy to share about the uh, difficulty and sort of futility of trying to quantify value in what we do. I'm not saying value is not there. I know what we do is tremendously valuable. The amount actually realized by people 
is going to vary wildly. Some of it can be directly, undisputably quantified. Um, some is purely emotional, subjective, different people perceive different amounts of value. How do you put a number on that? And then a lot of it is stuff that in theory um, will iron out to be value or money saved or taxes saved, but only with the benefit of hindsight, knowing how that recommendation panned out compared to what would have happened had they not implemented it. Example I give is like, we all know single stock portfolios are dangerous. Um, if someone came to me and they had 100% of their net worth in a publicly traded company, I'd say, you got to diversify that. What's to say that company doesn't do gangbusters and ends up like, you know, going up 100 times in value, right? In hindsight, the advice I would have given them to diversify to, you know, SP 500 would have, would have done terrible compared to what they would have done on their own. So did I really add value? Like, I know the right answer was they should have diversified. But I just cost them potentially millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. So like, where's the value? So anyway, I'm not saying value is not there. Just like that, that's why I'm yeah. squeamish to try to say, but well, we project we can save this or whatever because we don't know how it's going to pan out. Yeah. Um, I, and my other thing about value is I hate using doctors' analogies because it's often clunky and this is clunky, but it's the best I can come up with is think about two, two identical patients. They both have whatever, you know, tumor on, on there somewhere in the body, doesn't matter where. And the surgeon does the same procedure for both of them. You know, it's a half hour of surgery time plus anesthesia plus whatever. It's the same amount of cutting and slicing and stitching to remove the tumor. In one case, the tumor was benign. There wasn't really value add. It could have stayed there. The person would have been fine the rest of his or her life. The other case, it was some aggressive tumor that had they not caught it within a month, it would have spread to the rest of their body and killed them within six months tremendously more valuable, ultimately provided and received by the person whose life was saved. But for the surgeon and the support team that did the work, it was the exact same amount of resources and time and experience and knowledge, et cetera. I don't feel they should have charged more because the outcome ended up being better for this other person. So that's why I come back to, there's value in what we do. We don't know exactly what it is outside of the few things that can be you know, quantified without question. We have to charge more on resources, experience, time, knowledge, expertise, specialization, and get away from the idea of asset size or otherwise some nebulous hope we can quantify metric of value is what we're charging on. Yeah, That's what drives a lot of my views and beliefs about fees and a lot of the hotly debated comments and, and things I say and do online is comes down to that theory. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think that's a really great argument. And I think Part of what you're saying is why I work with who I work with and why we own tax planning is because it is one of the most quantifiable parts, right? If you help yeah. a business owner who never thought about the fact that they needed to be a C corp and now they're going to get QSBS on and save, you know, 10 millions of dollars or, you know, millions and millions of dollars of tax. Okay. That's easy. Okay. What if they were, you know, it made sense for them to move to S corp and then move to a, change their salary and yeah. then add a retirement account and you help them optimize QBI and all this stuff. You're like, okay, look, that's $40,000 of tax savings, not even factored out. Like this, it, it becomes easier to explain people value on right. those parts that are quantifiable. Your example of the investments is a, is a great one, right? Like you told them to make the textbook right answer even though it actually might not have been a better result. And, and some of those are hard, especially the accountability, helping people continue to do the right things, help people avoid the bad mistakes. Like, you know, those are things that are, well, we don't know the alternative. We don't know what they would have done without us. So right. you hope that that's something that they value. And that's something that I'm finding too is, you know, I think choosing to work with a financial planner when you're an accumulator on a regular basis is a choice. You could be okay with doing things fine, or you could choose that you want to optimize, right? And the clients that are going to stay with me forever are the ones that value having a third party there. They want to make sure they're making the right decisions and they always kind of worry about it. And three, they just want to make sure that every single year they're doing the right things. They're on track. They're preparing for their goals. And when a change happens, they have somebody who can help them make that decision. Not everybody values those things. And so like when I get to my capacity, it's going to be, people are going to trickle off that are just like, I wanted help for a year to, to get some of these big things figured out. But on an every year basis, I don't. And other people are like, I will pay whatever to have you there because the sense of security it gives me, the time it saves, all of that will, will always mean that I want to have somebody with me in that corner. 
I agree. And I have clients like that as well. Some, or, or even prospects where you can tell the questions they're asking, they're trying to parse out every single, okay, what do I get? What's the value here? What do you do for this? And how are you going to you know, treat this? And how do you quantify this? Versus others, they're just like, I don't know what I'm doing. To have someone who does know what they're doing oversee it, that peace of mind is, is invaluable for them. Yeah. And so X amount of fee for this person could be a, you know, a blazing deal that same X amount of dollars for the other person be like, absolutely not. This is ridiculously expensive for, for what I'm, what I think I'm getting. And that's also, what makes it hard in trying to come up with a value and what is the right level of fee for what we all do. There isn't a right level. So let's try to make it as um, logical and mutually fair as possible. And as, as least bad as possible. And, and the lens for how they view time savings, right? Like I have clients right now who are making well above $100,000 a month, right? If you quantify the value of their time and you save them 20 hours a year plus worry, they're like, oh, you know, our fee is 12,000 bucks. Like that is well worth it because any, especially business owners, right? Any time they spend away from their business doing something else is time that they can't grow the business. And every hour that they can spend growing the business means more income to them. That like how I view it is, you know, I have an assistant, I have a para planner, I have somebody that helps edit videos. You know, I you bring a house cleaner. Like I send my dog to daycare so I don't have to walk her after on busy days. Like all of those things allow me to spend more time in my business growing my income here, which I like to do more than those tasks that I offloaded. Right. Yeah, that's um, definitely an, an, another good lens to view it through for people for what, what's the value of their time, right? For sure. Is there any last topics of this that you think would be good to wrap up with? I, thought, I think those are three really good topics, but there's got to be one more that we could hit on. Maybe debt and, and the debt is dumb or you know dogmatic advice about all okay, debt's like bad this. type thing. So for example, you know Dave Ramsey, people either love him or hate him. He's a very polarizing figure, which I guess is probably intentional on his part. Definitely. But his, his view, which I think for a lot of people, for, for the masses, a lot of what he says makes a lot of sense and is, is probably applicable and, and good guidance to them, such but as he, all, all debt's bad, basically, is his view, right? He makes a ton of sense for low income, bad spending behavior, um, and already in debt, like that group Correct. of people, it's hard to argue that there's better advice for. The problem right. is, is that who's following him a lot of times are higher income, um, good spending behavior. And I mean, this is where you're going to go into now. Is that good or bad? Right. Like myself personally, well, like credit card debt, I don't think anyone could try to make a defensible case that that's good to have, especially when interest rates are high teens or 20 something percent. Like absolutely not. Right. Um, home debt, you know, primary residence, for example, applicable to a lot of people, should you or shouldn't you? There's staunchly different views on this. And in my own case, we have, my wife and I, about $90,000 left on our house. We can easily pay off, but it's two and seven eighths percent interest rate, which is really cheap, especially now considering where rates are and considering not to make this just a black and white math experiment, but we can get five plus percent guaranteed free from state income tax on treasury bills right now. So why use up our liquid money or investable assets to pay down interest at two and seven eighths percent when we could invest it and get guaranteed, you know, five plus percent. So in, in that case for us, we're educated and wise about usage of debt. What's good, what's bad. I think me having a mortgage on my house is, is fantastic thing to do for my circumstances. Dave Ramsey won't say that. He won't acknowledge that. He'll just beat the drum of all debt's bad, you know, pay it off. So that, you know, I, I think the debt issue, should you have debt, shouldn't you have debt, is probably one of those polarizing topics that uh, it, it really all depends. There, there's no, like I, I used the word dogmatic before. There shouldn't be dogmatic guidance. I always do this, always do that. And debt's a prime example of one of those. Yeah. Yeah. I think the home is like the easiest one. I totally agree. Credit card debt, unless like, Hey, you need that for your business to grow and you know, your business is going to do yeah. well. And that's like kind of your startup. Like maybe that's the one time where we know it's not good, but it's your best choice. The, mo the home, obviously, even at today's interest rates, I mean, I guess you could argue putting a little bit down, but mathematically, you're still probably going to end up in a better spot. You're still probably going to have opportunities to refinance later down the line. Some of the other harder ones, I think, are um, car. You know, for me, yeah. I'm not anti debt on a car, to be honest. I think there's a lot of people who say that you have to pay cash for a car. 
But also like if I have somebody who has plenty of cash flow, do we want to wait four more years to be able to get the car that actually your income could afford? Um, maybe, maybe not. I think two years ago when the interest rate on a car was two to 3%, it was kind of like, why would you not? Yeah. Now right. when it's like seven, 8% potentially, now you have the conversation of, is that really worth it? And then the other one, I think that nothing you talked about a lot is rentals. Like I think so yeah. many of my clients own rentals. And if you pay cash for a rental, sure, you're going to have a good cash flow, right? Like there's none going to the debt service, but you also have to view the opportunity cost of your return on equity. So one yes. thing I find a ton of my rental owners on is they have like a property, it's appreciated, it's worth a million dollars. They have like 300,000 left on the mortgage. They have 700,000 of equity and they're cash flowing like $6,000 a year. And you're like, 700,000 to take home $6,000 a year is legitimately under a 1% rate of return. Right. I'm not saying sell that rental, but it might actually make sense to use some of that equity to go to another rental. Um, it might make sense to, if interest rates go down, cash out, refi and expand that business. But like paying down all of your rentals can be okay. But in a true, if it's truly an investment, a lot of times the numbers are actually the worst when that's the situation. Uh, that's a great point. In, in business in general, you know, business opportunities, the um, efficient and wise use of leverage is, uh, can be good. Like we mentioned with the life insurance thing, leverage cuts both ways. It can make good returns that much better. It can make bad returns that much worse. Rentals are no different. Borrowing to start or run a business are no different. I personally owned two rentals. I sold them at the peak of COVID because prices were so high. I was like, why not? Yeah. Um, but to your point, I, I did the math, you know, made these elaborate spreadsheets to calculate return on equity when I bought them of how much loan should I take, factoring in all the cash flow, you know, all the costs and borrowing as much as I could against each of those properties was the best decision. I even factored in uh, vacancies and how that would impact things. For now, sure. where I where that could have bit me was if I had prolonged periods of vacancies, like, you know, six months out of the year or something. Leverage would have hurt, but you know I did the analysis and did the um, due diligence, and I thought I can pretty easily rent them. And sure enough, I did, and leverage worked out being great for me because it made the yeah. uh, use of my equity that much better. And obviously, in that situation, if you would have taken out a ton on a HELOC, and now HELOC rates are nine or ten yeah. percent, that could have been dangerous. But if you could have cash out refi from you know maybe at a five percent down to a three and a half of that period right. of time take that equity, use it to accumulate more rentals. A lot of times that would be a good decision when done well. Like what I found is that if you're going to do rentals, you got to do rentals, right? Having one rental, yeah, right. two rentals is probably not something that's going to end up working out really, really well. That it's either like, we're going to use our income. And I guess for my clients, right? So if you have a hundred thousand a month that you're, that you can go invest elsewhere, you can do rentals and investing at the same time yeah. and diversify and build a great, you know, portfolio, great wealth through it. The, I don't really love the idea of I'm going to take all of my surplus. I'm not going to invest elsewhere. I'm just going to buy like one rental every two years because that's what I can afford. To me, that's kind of a tougher business. But for the high income earners, it can be great because you can be pulling multiple investing levers and right. even probably your business at the same time. And now you're well diversified, you're well shielded, you're, you're like maybe they're uncorrelated in certain ways and you're probably building wealth pretty quick in a way that what if my business doesn't look like this in five years? Like that's the biggest thing that most of my clients talk about is like, I'm killing it now, but who knows if this is going to continue, right? Like I have a client who him and two other partners are doing over 20 million a year right now in an Amazon business with no employees. And, you know, they're netting like 6 million on that three owners, that's a lot of money they have, but they're like, if Amazon makes a change at all right. in the next couple of years, we could go back to having zero in revenue. So here's our way to build wealth, which I love that my generation, I feel like is understanding that like, our goal is not to spend every single dollar in our business, keep it there. And then one day sell, we also need to be doing other things along that time. Cause everything I've heard from older advisors is like, that was the problem. They would do nothing besides grow their business and plan to sell and retire. And not every business is sellable. And I don't think people understand that. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. It comes back to diversity of cash flow, diversity of risks. And um, that's a great example of Amazon. You know, if Amazon makes one small change, that can completely crush your business. And there goes that, right? So yeah, who knows? What if Amazon made it that they only sell their products? All of a sudden they flip and yeah. they've replicated every product. Like 
now you can no longer sell there. What's the next marketplace you go to? There really isn't a good alternative to that. Right. Good point. Uh, okay, cool, man. I know that we're kind of wrapping up on the time. Uh, any closing thoughts that you have before we uh, finish this episode? One last one I thought about like a, like a minute ago is tax return refunds. Is it okay to get one or not? <laughs> Hotly debated. Some people say, absolutely not. Don't give an interest-free loan to the government and they, they will do everything in their power to not have any sort of refund. Um, I get it. I'm not in that camp. I think some Neither. refunds fine. Don't leave too much. If you're leaving like 50 grand of refund, you overdid it. But I personally like getting a few thousand bucks of refund. That few thousand dollars I could have had invested or saved in a CD or whatever would have got me some interest. So yes, I did make an interest-free loan to the government, but it wouldn't have changed my life. So so what? Um, so people need to stop tooting the horn so hard about do not ever leave a refund for the IRS. I love that. I actually talk about this with my clients all the time too. I'm like, I would rather you pay a little extra and get some back than be short and worried about it. And I think this is one of those pure cases of like trying to over-optimize just to give yeah, something right. to do. It's like somebody said like, hey, you know, I want to do my backdoor Roth, you know, does it matter if I do it now or at the end of the year? And I'm like, obviously it would be better to do it now, but you have 35 years, you know, till retirement. Right. At the end of the day, the true thing is just doing it, right? Like you're exactly. trying to over-optimize this perfect solution when in some years it's going to be better to do it at the end. Some years going to be better to do it at the beginning. Over-optimizing on those small things is just not really, you know, the, the $2,000 you gave that, you know, you could have got at 4%, like 80 bucks, is not something to be spending your time worrying about. I love that term. Over optimizing sums it up really well. I think a lot especially over optimizing on, on low return things. Like if you want yeah. to over optimize on something, it's like taxes, right? Or uh, maybe you're over optimized and your business and the income or like not having too many expenses. But like people over optimize and move from four percent to four point one percent high yield savings account. Like that's just not right. where you're going to make any difference in your life, and you're wasting time that could be doing something better with. I'm so with you on that. Well said. Um, okay, cool, man. Well, uh, thanks for joining us today. Let everybody know the best place that they can follow and engage with you. Probably just retirementplanningeducation.com. That is the single source for my non-advisory uh, outlets and initiatives. So the Facebook group is there, YouTube channel is there, the podcast is there, which I just actually put on pause, taking a hiatus on that. And a bunch of freely downloadable stuff is all there. So that's... Um, probably the best way to get to get to me and my content. Okay, perfect. And everybody, I've checked it out. It's awesome. He has such good content. You can learn a lot from I have myself. Um, but Handy, thanks for joining us today, giving us all this time and wealth of knowledge. And everybody, thanks for listening. Please rate and subscribe and we will see you back next week. Thank you very much.